Hello, and welcome to the Measure Up Podcast, a show dedicated to helping marketers and analytics professionals know what's working, what's not, and how to measure it all. I'm your host, Jim Genolio. Listen along as I talk to people just like you who are dealing with the marketing measurement challenges in today's world and learn best practices, tips, and actionable advice. A lot of marketers are familiar with A-B testing, usually with regards to website testing and conversion rate optimization. There are a lot of tools like Optimizely and VWO and the soon-to-be-dead Google Optimize that makes those kinds of tests really easy to implement. But there's another kind of testing that marketers are becoming more interested in lately, and that's testing of the marketing itself. It goes by many names, randomized controlled trials, geolift experiments, holdout testing, Maybe you've heard of some of these, but you weren't sure where to start with how to implement them. And there's certainly not a robust industry of software companies making this easily accessible. So what's a marketer to do? Well, today I'm thrilled to be joined by someone who can help us understand this testing landscape a little better. Someone who has both an academic and a business side background. She has a bachelor's in mathematics, a master of science in industrial engineering, and a PhD in marketing. She's applied those learnings at companies like General Motors and Amazon and continues to train the next generation of marketers and analysts as Associate Professor of Marketing at Drexel University's LeBeau College of Business. Welcome to the show, Ellie Fight. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm excited for this conversation. Yes, as well am I, because this is an area that uh, I've certainly spent a lot of time um, researching and, and working on with clients over the past several years. And so I, I love to talk to people about, about this topic, and I'd love to get your ideas and your feedback. I know you certainly have a lot of uh, experience and some thoughts around testing specifically. So super excited for this conversation. Um, but before we kind of dive into the, the fun topic of testing, I want to understand a little bit about you and how you got to where you're at right now. Yeah, sure. Um, so I... I kind of grew up, my first real grown-up job was at uh, General Motors doing market research for product design. Um, why that? Well, mostly because I love cars. Uh, my husband and I moved to Detroit right after we got married, and he was working at Ford, and I was working at GM. Um, and product design decisions are actually one of the biggest investments that car companies make. You know, de Developing a new car is about a $500 million exercise. And so getting the features of that car right is important. And I worked on conjoint analysis, which is this survey technique that we use to understand how customers trade off features like fuel economy against roominess, uh, sportiness, other features of the car. Um, so what really motivates me is working on problems that are sort of fundamental problems for a company. Um, so after I, I ended up getting a PhD and I landed a job running at the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative here in Philadelphia. Um, and in that job, I talked to a lot of companies about marketing analytics cast very broadly, like all different, you know, inventory planning and forecasting and, you know, basically anything that could be called marketing analytics. And during the time I was working there, I realized that ad measurement and experiments for incrementality, that's what I would call them, uh, holdout experiments, are also kind of fundamental to marketing decisions, right? If you think about a CMO's job and, and what they control, 
They might influence the product design, but they definitely control this huge budget for advertising. And so if we can understand which advertisements are working, which aren't, and kind of reallocate that spend, um, that ends up being kind of a fundamental business decision. So for the last 10 years or so, I've been teaching classes and writing papers about that that topic area. That's amazing. And then that's, that's, I feel to me, it feels like the, the question that marketers have been trying to answer forever since there has been marketing is, and I hate to even use this quote because it's at this point, it feels so cliche, but you know, John Wanamaker, half of my marketing budget is wasted. I just don't know which half. Right. And that's, it continues today. Like we haven't solved that um, necessarily. I think we've made some progress for sure, but that's the thing that I've been focused on for a long time. And I know a lot of others have, have been really working on how do we solve that problem. Um, you know, if you go to England, they attribute that quote to Lord Leverhulme. No way. They do, which is horrible for, as a Philadelphian. Like, <laughs> we want to honor John Wanamaker, who had a store in Philadelphia. Right. That, whose building still exists uh, right there on Market Street. But yeah, other people say that it, it was someone else who said that, but. Of course, it's true, right? We don't know which ads work. And if we could make those decisions even just a little bit more efficiently, there's just a ton of opportunity there. Yeah, It's funny, a lot of academics tend to pick very niche problems to work on. Um, that's sort of the, you know, the pleasure of the ivory tower is you get to work on whatever you want. Um, but I tend to pick problems that are just sort of fundamental to the company. Yeah, and there's so many different ways you can go with this question of attribution, um, a lot of different directions you can take it. Um, and one way that you took it was uh, tackling this whole experimentation framework for marketers with the test and enroll framework. Uh, I, I think I call it a framework. I don't know if, if that's appropriate. Do you call it, so is it is it really a framework or is it something else there? Sorry, I think getting- it's a framework for how you, yeah, you could call it a framework. It's a framework for how you should think about um, about planning marketing experiments. So I think framework is fair. Um, we'll get into it in a bit, but the details of exactly how I set up the problem are very specific to one kind of test, but we could talk about how you could modify it for other types of tests. So in that sense, yeah, I think a framework is a good term. Yeah, maybe a little bit too pedantic, but um, sometimes language matters. <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's dive into it and, and talk about what is uh, test and roll. Maybe maybe give the, like the the thirty second overview of of what this is. Um. So, uh, I guess I'll start with the story of how it how this idea came to me. So when I was at Wharton, I uh, had a little side gig teaching a class called Experiments for Business Decisions. So the idea was to have a class that was just about how to run experiments, and so I was you know showing them. Uh, this was pre-optimizely. We were looking at like Adobe test and learn, which wasn't even called Adobe at the time. And um, anyway, uh, this was kind of a whole semester long class that ended with a project where you had to run an experiment for a business decision and then analyze it and report the results. And I had this student, MBA student, very bright, and he was working with a well-funded startup. Um, and he computed the required test textbook sample sizes to run the experiment that he wanted to run for his project. And the sample size was way bigger than he could plausibly get, like maybe 100x what he could plausibly get, given that this was a startup. Like, we weren't talking like 
tiny, but he was going to run the test with maybe 200 customers, not 2,000 or 20,000. Mm-hmm. And he came to me and he said, okay, I, I used that sample size formula you told me, and it says I need I need 10,000 and I'll just never get that. So should I just like not run the test? And I thought, well, obviously having some data is better than no data. It's just not as much data as you would like to have. But if I have the choice between a little bit of maybe not quite enough data and no data, it's just like intuitively obvious that it would be better to have a little bit of data. Yet we see blog posts that are like, stop, don't run the test. <laughs> you don't have enough. And I just thought, that's, that is nutso. Who came up with that idea? Have you had that experience of just like, like, uh, this is impossible. What should we do now? Similar, not, not quite that much, but I used to have um, account managers who were fixated on statistical significance. And we, we, have, we need to make sure that this test it reaches statistical significance. And it's like that word that just got stuck in their head that they, we need to make sure we have a big enough sample size and we got to get that stat sig. Uh, the phrase that just became yeah. so grating on me, but um, you wonder what kind of stats professors these people had that beat it into them, right? <laughs> like, exactly. it, like, oh, I have to have that thing, but I don't know why. So, yeah, well, I started and, to and think like, about what is that stats? I started to think like, what is that stats sig thing? Why are we following this protocol? And so I started to read quite a lot about deeply like back to Fisher and Naaman and the people who invented this stuff. And the hypo- it's called the hypothesis testing framework. That's like kind of the official name is the null hypothesis significance test. And when that was invented, they were really worried about a certain kind of mistake. They gave it a name, false positive or type one error. Um, and that mistake it's like they couch it in jargon so you don't really understand it. But suppose you were doing a website A-B test or an email A-B test and you had um, you, you made the mistake of saying that A is better than B when really A and B perform the same. Right, because the null hypothesis is there's no difference between A and B. They are the same. And right. What we're trying to do is disprove that. We're saying... This is another thing that I always had a hard time explaining or getting through to, you know, the the non-statistician. Not not to take anything away from them; they're great account managers, but they're not spending every day in statistics land. So, yeah, getting, totally. Yeah. But there's a problem in statistics land. Let me get to it. Yes. So, um, so the statisticians were really worried about making this mistake of saying A is different than B when really A and B are the same. And they were thinking about this in the context of science where it kind of makes sense. Like if I want to say that like this drug is better than not having the drug, then I do want to be very conservative about saying that A is better than B when potentially are the same. But if we think about the website test, what's going to happen? If I declare A is better than B when truly A and B are the same, I have not affected my profit whatsoever. I have deployed A but it's the same as B, so it doesn't matter. So there's a lot of work going into the stat sig, that nomenclature to protect against a kind of mistake that literally doesn't matter to us as digital marketers. Now, if A and B were like two designs of a physical store where there's a whole lot of money involved in deploying A, then 
we have to rethink things. But in the digital setting, the deployment is is free. Like I just push a button and now it's A instead of B. And so I can kind of tolerate a lot of mistakes, even if even if actually B is a little better, but not very much better, and I deploy A, that's not a big deal, right? Exactly. It's like a, not a very profit-changing mistake. And so the statisticians didn't have profit in mind. So what I did was me and a co-author of mine at Wharton, Ron Berman, we sat down and we wrote out what you should do if you're trying to maximize profit. And the first thing is um, going to be kind of like an intuitive revelation. If you have any amount of data and that's only the data that you have, you should pick the one with the higher average, full stop. It doesn't matter if it's statistic or not. Like if that's the data you've got, the best evidence you have is that the one with the higher average is the better one. It might nice. not be true, but you might as well go with that one. That's going to kind of maximize your profit. So that's part one. And then part two is we actually figured out, okay, what would be the optimal sample size for a test? if you were trying to maximize your profit. And it turns out you can do this with calculus. Like you can do it all like no computation, like just all on paper. Um, so sort of Ron worked it all out. And then like I took the derivative and set it equal to zero like you learned in high school. And that was the sample size formula I solved for N. And there's our sample size formula. And then we started playing with that formula and we realized it gives you sample sizes that are like 10x smaller than what the other formula does. Because when you're thinking about profit, what's really important is that you catch the big, big differences and you deploy the right one when the difference is big. You really don't want to deploy A when B is a lot better. Right. But that's going to be easy to see. If B is a lot better, you're going to see it with a small N. Exactly. Um, and, it, and so it's, it's yeah. almost like so anyway. you're teaching marketers too that, and I like I like the way that this sort of dovetails with uh, another idea that I see floating around every once in a while on LinkedIn and Twitter and everywhere, which is stop testing the small stuff. <laughs> That's if it's not going to make a big difference, unless you're you know a huge multinational conglomerate where a half a percent change means you know significant money. Test the big things. Test the things that have a higher likelihood of having a larger effect. Because A, like to your point, it's going to be much more observable with a smaller sample size, and it's going to be much easier to to, to see that. One one quote yeah, I like, especially if you're a little advertiser, test the big stuff. Yes. Test, uh, well, I there is one exception to this. When say you're working with a small startup and the two founders are in total disagreement about something <laughs> that the marketing analyst thinks is probably dumb then it's worth testing it just to get them to stop thinking about True. it. That's a way they're wasting their time. And you can sometimes shut the door on dumb conversations by saying, look, you're both right. They're the same. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then, then it's, you know, testing for political purposes. <laughs> uh, I think testing for political purposes is a very important part of the marketing analyst practice. Like, I don't think we're not, we're not like true scientists out there. Your goal as a marketing analyst is to help the organization make better decisions, full stop. And if doing things for political reasons helps the organization move forward, go for it. Like, don't feel like that's not, you know, in your lane as a marketing analyst. It's totally in your lane. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, so in terms of, so we were just talking about like taking big swings, look, going for the big changes. Yeah. Uh, 
Is there a sort of a rule of thumb around um, how big is big? Uh, should we like be making really like? It's hard to even articulate <laughs> the mm. the like how how do we know what is big? How do we? Is it more of a well? I think if I turn off this marketing completely, then I, that's big, right? Or is it if I shut off marketing fifty percent? To, you know, take take the budget down fifty percent. Is that big enough? Or how do we how do we think about how big to go? How big is big that? enough to test? Um, so this is not a question that's in the paper. So I don't have like a ready answer for you that how how big is big enough to test? I think uh, I think you should think about how big of an effect it has on the company. So when I was like coming up at GM. Um, in the marketing research group, and we were doing some research to inform a decision, the first thing we had to do was like sketch out how much money was on the table. Like if we make that decision better, how big a deal is it for the company? And we would have to actually like uh, sketch out a back of the envelope calculation. And that would be the first slide in the deck of any time we reported results on that project or talked to anyone about that project, that would be the first thing there. Um, and that was like kind of how projects got prioritized. And sometimes even the analysts would see it themselves. They'd have some passion project that they're really interested in. And then um, they do the back of the envelope calculation and realize like, even when I'm trying, I can't make this important. <laughs> so they back off of that project. So I think that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah. And I, I think of the What do you do? Well, yeah, I was I was just kind of thinking how how to apply that in some some sort of real world scenarios where let's say a marketing team is wanting to test out a new channel, and they say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna test out CTV ads, uh, connected TV ads, and and mm -hmm. you know, this was a question we got a lot, which is, you know, how big of a budget do we need to devote to this? And this is where you know doing this kind of back of the napkin math could help out, and you can say, well. If we have two hundred thousand dollars to spend here, the the company that we're spending it with tells us this is approximately how many impressions that we'll get. We think, based on our domain knowledge and expertise, that we should see about this much of an effect, and it can kind of back into it. There's a lot of assumptions that have to be made, and then say like, "Oh, this is going to be well within the noise, and we'll never be able to see it." Right, right. Or you, yeah. or do you say, "Well, no. If you want to really test this out, you need to make a big bet." put in half a million dollars because you're definitely going to see what's happening at that level mm -hmm. and we'll be able to quantify it. But then there's, you know, you have to tell a client to double their, <laughs> what they thought they were going to invest, double it, um, or at least give yeah, some recognition. Yeah, and that's not, not always easy. And if, uh, if you're a third party analyst, that's easier to do than if you're, uh, if you're the person selling the ads, <laughs> it's harder. It's even more to say, well, in order to figure out if these ads work, you need to give me you know, $3 million. And then I'll tell you if your ads work. A lot of clients are a little leery of that when the person talking to them is the person selling the $3 million worth of ads. Yeah. And there was the other way about getting to it, which was you test in a smaller geography than mm. what would end up being rolled out. So if you have $200,000 that if the test is successful, will be rolled out nationally. Well, let's take that 200000 and, and test it in a small geography. <laughs> <laughs> and then when right. we show what the big effect, the, how big how big of an effect it has, you go to the client and say, "Well, here's how big of an effect it had when you spent two hundred thousand in half the country, 
So if you want that same effect in the whole country, you just got to double your spend. <laughs> yeah, this I, is this is where I'm going to start to be frustrated that this is an audio uh, podcast. <laughs> but do you talk to your clients about the S-shaped curve? Uh, yeah. So yeah, the saturation curve. And so yeah, if if you're if you believe that sales increase according to an S-shaped curve, it's going to be flat and then steep and then flat again. And so if you're playing. <laughs> in the very high end, like we just spend a lot and we don't care range or we're not spending enough. Either way, um, if you do a test, um, you're not going to see a difference because you're kind of in the flat part of the curve. Right. Yeah. Unless you're structuring the test to be sort of, you know, quite like a multivariate test where you're testing different levels of spend. But then that's... You know, yeah. Getting... I just saw a paper that actually proposes um, doing exactly that. So... Instead of running your standard incrementality test where you have, um, this is my best shot at setting the campaign parameters and this is it turned off, why not test you know, a couple points in between? Um, and that has a huge advantage because then you can start to trace out that S-shaped response sure. curve and figure out where is the sweet spot. Yeah, exactly. I was just talking with someone from a, a company uh, that does exactly that. That's a big part of, of what they provide from a testing framework is sort of uh, testing across multiple spin levels to really get that level of uh, dimensioning curves, that S-curve, um, to really start to fill that out and, and get a better sense of that, which is... I, I, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Jim. I just want to uh, cut in to say that little noise you just heard was Jim tracing out with his hands. So for the last like two minutes here, Jim and I are like drawing pictures in the air with our hands. So you just have to imagine that in your mind's eye. Exactly. I always, yeah, um, got to think of the audio audience. <laughs> so getting back to the test and roll framework in that setting, so we don't give you advice in the framework for how big of a, a you know, how big of a change to make, you know, don't test small A's and B's. But what we do ask you to do is to sort of explain the range of differences that you might expect between A and B. So you you kind of, you actually draw a probability density for the hunt, which is a little complicated. It's maybe the hard part of it. But if you just tell me like, I think the difference between A and B could be as big as this, or it could be zero. I can translate that into the probability. If you just say, this is the biggest difference between A and B that I could imagine happening. Like it could be a 30% lift, but it can't possibly be more than that. Then we take that and that goes into our sample size formula. And so it does this cool thing that if you say, ah, oh, this is going to be a big lift. I think this is going to be a 2X kind of thing. It'll say, run a small test because you'll be able to see that very quickly. But if you say, I think this is going to be a little thing, like it's only going to be 10 to 20%, it'll run a bigger test. It'll tell you, you need to run a bigger test for that. Nice. Um, the, the other little thing that it it has is it tell you have to say what is your total population size that you could ever deploy on. And it will say, it kind of figures out the sample size as a fraction of that. So it won't do this thing that the, the student at Wharton um, ran into with the other formula, which is the sample size is bigger than he could plausibly get because it actually takes as input what's the plausibly largest size you can get. Mm -hmm. And then it it makes a trade-off. It's actually computing the cost of, there's an opportunity cost to the test, right? Because you're doing, by definition, one of those things is not better 
And so you're losing some money by not giving the better thing. Of course, you don't know which one is the better thing, which is why you need the test, but the test has a cost. And then when you deploy, there's a risk that you deploy the wrong one and you make a mistake. And so what the test and roll framework does is uh, looks at the trade-off between those two costs and tries to find out the, the test size that maximizes the total amount you earn or statisticians always think the other way. So they say the total loss. So the total loss relative to an omniscient person telling you what to do. Um, And so it actually does that. Maybe you've heard this phrase, the explore, exploit trade-off. So during the test, you're exploring. And then during the deploy stage, you're exploiting. And it makes a, a calculated risk that you will deploy the wrong one against the cost of learning more. If I... You know, if I increase the test size, my risk of deploying the wrong one goes down, but I'm the cost of the test gets bigger. And so it makes that explicitly. Um, but it doesn't account for media costs. So that's not kind of really baked into it in advance. So if we were thinking about incrementality tests, there's some like tweaks. This is the kind of tweaks around the edges that we would have to do to the framework to make it fit different kinds of problems. Gotcha. And if a marketer wants to play around with this, I, I think you have a, a website that has like a calculator that they can explore and, and see how it works. Yeah, it's a little like web 2.0 clunky little calculator, but yes, you can play with it. Uh, we have a version of it where you can even, if you've run tests in the past and you think those are representative of the kind of tests that you've run, you can upload your data and then it will tell you what's the optimal size for the next test that you run. Awesome. And we'll we'll include links in the in the show notes to Yeah, I think it's just testenroll.com. So I oh, keep perfect. talking over you, Jim. Oh no, that's Sorry. okay. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> testenroll.com and yeah, links in the show notes as they say. Uh, good. Yeah, I love I, I we could keep talking about this uh, probably for the next hour, but a few more topics that we want to kind of, you know, talk about. Hey, it's Jim here with Quick Aside. If you're listening to this episode and enjoying it, I've got to tell you about the Mix It Up newsletter from MMM Hub. It's a free newsletter that provides resources on how to effectively measure your marketing. It includes helpful tutorials, cutting edge tools, and relevant articles so readers can make smarter decisions with their marketing dollars. You can sign up today at mmmhub.org. Now back to the show, because I think people will have some questions about, which is along the lines of testing, um, you know, if we are not setting up and designing our own tests outside of uh, outside of platforms like Meta and Google, um, you know, Meta and Google specifically are a couple of platforms that offer in-platform testing, where you know you can work with their uh, with your account manager, and they can actually get you out, set up with a test within Facebook or within uh, within Google Search. Um, what are your What are your thoughts about in-platform? Uh, testing versus sort of this kind of outside of the platform testing. Um, are there sort of pros and cons to each or one you would prefer over the other? Yeah. So, I mean, clearly there's the, do you trust the platform to execute the test? Um, so that's always something you have to think about it. But the platforms are really in a much better position to conduct the test. So in the end, to run a good test, you need randomization. And the best you can do from outside is like geo level randomization. And if they don't provide a tool, that ends up being like 
super clunky to do. It's like just a lot of detailed work that you're going to mess up. Like I've even had students do it. Even like 10 years ago, I had Warden students who would run geo experiments on Facebook where they'd run a creative in a different city on each day, according to an experimental design called a Latin Square. It was kind of cute. But they would spend hours setting up all the campaigns to do that manually, um, which is just a hassle. And they invariably would screw one cell up and then they're like yeah. kind of trying to report the results at the weird cell and and, um, and doing this harder. Yeah. And doing this with clients where you're working with the client and the client's vendor who's running their ads, like anytime where you have to coordinate the the turning off or on of different ads based on geolocation and it's just you're adding so so many more areas of uh, of ways that it can get screwed up <laughs> the the other thing that the platforms can do that is very hard to do from the outside is run user level randomized experiments exactly so, um, the platforms can actually come up with a way where we're going to basically take a group of users and hold them out from the campaign entirely so that we have that clean control group. And so in media, when you do that, you run into this problem of exactly when the randomization happens. So this is something if you're talking to a platform about their testing setup, you should ask them when in the process does the randomization happen? So if they randomize based their whole user database, which is what most of the platforms do, then um, they have this group of people that are supposed to be withheld from the ads, but those people might never show up to the platforms. They might never use Facebook or they never use Amazon or whoever whoever's running the experiment. And so those, those users don't get exposed. You also have people in the treatment group who don't get exposed. And people often make the mistake of comparing the users in the treatment group who actually saw the ads to everyone in the control group. But that's not a, a fair fight. Those not apples to apples because it turns out like the people who use the internet more, they also buy more stuff. And so they're and they're more likely to show up at the platform. And so you're comparing the kind of heavier users in the treatment group to the sort of heavier users plus the grandmas in the control group, the grandmas that don't buy anything online and don't use the platform very much. Um, and so you you end up with this kind of unfair test. So there's two ways around that. One is to just keep track of people who are in the control group who could have seen the ad. Um, so that's called ghost ads. So you run the ad auction, pretending that that user is eligible. And then at the last minute, you yank the ad and show something else okay um and and that's like you could never do that from the outside you could never randomize at the user level and then make a record of the users in the control group who would have seen the ad without the assistance of the platform right and this is the whole idea around showing the control group who is not supposed to see your ad that you show them a psa like a public service announcement or some some unrelated oh, yeah. ad that's not your actual advertisement for your company, right? I skipped a step there. So if you use a PSA, then you, in theory, you have the people who should have been exposed to your ad because they you get the, so whatever, the clickstream data on the users that were in the PSA group because you paid for it. Right. 
Um, so you can do that from the outside. It's still not clean because that PSA is going to get sub-targeted by the app platform in a different way than your ad. Yeah. So you're going to get like, if they're kittens, you're going to get all the kitten love in the PSA, I mean. So say the PSA is for the SPCA, then you're going to get all the kitten lovers seeing that ad and your ad may not go to kitten lovers. So you're still not getting like a perfectly clean comparable. Whereas the platform can execute a cleaner comparison group because they can essentially just like run a fake auction on your behalf, see if you would have won the slot and then mark that it's, this is what they call ghost ads. Then you mark that user as having seen a ghost of your ad and then you give them the next ad in line. So you still get to sell the slot and nobody had to pay for it. So the the platforms should be able to execute these ads without charging you any extra for the media because they're going to sell the ones they don't sell to you they sell it to someone else so yeah they're not losing anything revenue wise interesting and and the idea i know you said the the thing that sometimes people do wrong is they compare everyone who saw your ad to the entire group of the control group um which could be a significant portion of people who never had the opportunity to see your ad doesn't exactly does, does the the randomization of users doesn't the the magic of randomization make it such that the proportion of people in each group who had the opportunity to see your ad is roughly the same or am i missing what am i missing with that uh so if there's two if you run this experiment and you don't do the ghost ads thing so you don't know who in the control group had the opportunity What you can do is you can compare everyone in the treatment group, even the people who didn't see the ad, to everyone in the control group. Mm -hmm. But you're going to get a low estimate of the... What you're estimating is really then the effect of ads on all people, even people who don't see ads, which is a weird number to even... It's like, I've (laughs) never even tried to present that to business decision makers because... it's too hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, and, and in essence, um, you're back to finding you're you're back to limiting the size of the effect that you're able to see, which means then you need even a bigger sample, and it's back to that whole issue. <laughs> yes, this yeah. world gets extremely. Um, it's a labyrinth to try to figure this stuff out. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's another reason why the platforms should offer this because they potentially can afford to have one group of people invent a clean system for doing this and then provide that as a service to all advertisers that's like should be more efficient than having all the advertisers from the outside trying to figure out how to how to do ad measurement but of course the the platforms themselves are not totally sure that they want to do this or not do this right platforms are big companies big companies are a mess of people making weird messy decisions together and so they are trying to do it for the right reasons. There's always going to be the the people who are skeptic and say, oh, sure, Google search, you're going to let me test my ads and let me guess, you're going to tell me the ads were phenomenal and I should spend more money with ads, right? It's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's another reason the platforms should be doing it that um, I kind of wanted to highlight. They sell a product. Can you imagine selling a product and you have absolutely no idea how much value it provides to your customers? You can't do basic marketing 101 like value-based pricing if you don't know the value of it. Exactly. And so I really think even if the platforms don't offer it as a service, 
they should at least be setting up the systems to do this measurement themselves so that they can say like, we think that we're providing this much value to, and, and this could be different by industry. So like Google could say, oh, we're providing this much uh, value to airlines and we're providing less value to CPG firms maybe. And so now we should maybe think about pricing models that account for that. And also we should prioritize the impressions to the airlines because they're getting more, it's generating more value. It's so interesting because there's sort of this um, competing incentives, right? If I'm if I'm Google or if I'm Meta, I would think that from the outside looking in, they would be incentivized to have this information be obscured, to be opaque. Because if there's... Um, knowledge asymmetry and, and the people buying the ads don't know the true value, then it seems like the, the, the platforms would have more power in that scenario. No, I agree. I agree with you entirely. But I think the platforms should at the very least know for themselves. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't have a very good ability to predict when an advertiser is going to walk because they don't it's like everybody's just arguing about whether these ads provided value and nobody actually knows. So the platform is in a position to know, which would actually give them even more information asymmetry and power in the relationship. So I think they should be building these systems. I, I um, Yeah, and that's that's the other side of it, which I think they are. Um, I would I'd like to think that they're doing it for the right right reasons. I think you know, a lot of the advancements that I've been seeing lately around, you know, both the, the in-platform testing for, for Meta and for Google, which haven't, you know, haven't been there forever, right? Those are somewhat new um, features. Um, but also uh, an area that I'm even, you know, more focused on, which is in the marketing mixed modeling area, you have Meta, probably the most notable one, putting out an open source R package called Robin, which is open sourced semi-autonomous modeling, marketing mix modeling. Um, and then you also have Google. They put out their sort of unofficial uh, package called Lightweight MMM, which is a Bayesian model. Um, there's a lot of other examples out there. PyMC Marketing has uh, has one out there. There's people who are even using uh, Uber's Orbit package or library uh, to yeah. help with MMM. Uh, but mostly, you know, with, with what we see with what, Meta has been doing the last few years trying to really develop MMM with Robin and what Google has been putting out there. It seems like at least some portions of those companies are being incentivized to make measurement easier for their customers. Um, and I'd like to think that that's a good thing and they're doing it for altruistic purposes and because they believe their their product does have value. Um, but what, what do you think of, of this area with marketing mixed modeling? I know it's not something that you focused on uh, as much, but how do you see it from from your from your seat? I think it's I think it's super exciting. Like uh, I I was actually looking at Robin's documentation and the Bayesian the lightweight Google's lightweight MMM uh, just before this call. And here's the one thing: as a modeler, it's really hard to like figure out about what all these things are doing under the hood. They're like very slick software packages that make it really easy to do something that you have no idea what it is. So like from your perspective, are they all good or do you have to like pick and choose or it, have we gotten to an equilibrium where everybody's offering like a pretty good modeling product or are we yeah, not quite there yet? That's a great question. Uh, something that I'm 
kind of currently trying to research myself, um, basically trying to compare several models on the same data set and just seeing how they perform. And what's sort of unknown to me too is, is okay, if you have a sample data set and you, you run them on all three and you get the best performance from each model, one is going to perform better than the others, but is it because of that data set? Or you know, could it, is it going to apply to all data sets? Like each data set might have its own peculiarities that mean, oh, well, this data set had a lot more TV spend. And so, you know, maybe lightweight does better with modeling, you know, um, TV spend than it does with, you know, more performance-based marketing or, or something like that, right? So it's, to, to me, I'm currently, I guess, less interested in which one is best um, and more interested in just getting customers to use one of them, any of them, like to even kind of start down that path of let's get away from last touch attribution or multi-channel attribution or data-driven attribution that you're used to looking at in, in Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics or whatever analytics platform you're looking at. And let's at least try to use something that's a little bit better at answering one of the more important questions that you're asking, which is how is this channel performing? How much money should I put into this channel versus this other channel? What's the incremental return on investment versus the, you know, the ROI that is given from, you know, some attribution tool like Google Analytics or whatever it might be that is clearly not right. You know, I, I'm not as, I, I hear you. I hear you. I do like I did. We started out talking about some data must be better than no data, but that was specific to randomized experiments. So in a randomized experiment, you like you can hardly get it wrong. That's why we teach it to eighth graders in their science fair projects. You know, if you ran one, two, three, repeat with me, randomization will set you free. Love it. And when we get to MMM world, we are constrained by the data is imperfect and. These models have kind of a lot of structure built into them to try to get information out of this small amount of data. And so there's a lot of like um, analyst degrees of freedom to sort of change the model. I'll tell you a quick story. The only commercial MMM I ever built, I was like kind of a third party consultant to a market research firm. And there was an analyst who just gotten her master's degree in econometrics and she was running the models. I just sort of told her what to do and then she did it. And then she called me and she said, Ellie, you said that like this assumption could be either this way or that way. So I tried it both ways and I can flip the signs on whether advertising works or doesn't work. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's, that's like a scary situation to be in. So the reason I'm so obsessed with like what is the structure in these models is um, it does matter for the answer you get. With with randomization, you'll kind of the bigger your data set, the closer you'll get to the truth. But with modeling, if you have the analyst imposing assumptions on the data and those assumptions are wrong, you could go completely off course. So I'm a little like uh, worried about this. So one of my next research projects, the reason I'm looking at all these packages is I would like to go back to the marketing literature and look at experiments and say, what do we really know about these things empirically? So for instance, these models impose these decay functions for how fast the advertising, basically how long advertising lasts. And we could go back to experiments and analyze them and see if they follow the shapes that we're using in the models so that at least we have a little bit more um, foundation 
for those strong assumptions that go into the models. Yeah, there there is a fair bit of, you know, is the cart leading the horse and and how we build models, right? Like are, you know, we have this assumption about how things work and so we try to build a model that fits those assumptions, right? We think, oh, well, you know, if someone sees our TV ads this week, there's a likelihood that they might buy next week or even next month. And so there's there's got to be some sort of decay function in there to make sure that the spend of TV this week kind of decays over time. So we have to model that out and write our fancy mathematical uh, equation to, to account for that. But again, we're- going to use this Weibull thing yes. that I found a Wikipedia page for. <laughs> Seems to be the right shape roughly. Exactly. What I'd like to do is compare that Weibull to data sets where we could actually observe that decay, like in a randomized experiment where we can look at the difference between the control and the treatment yeah. over time and say, yeah, you should use the Weibull or no, you shouldn't. Or yes, you should use the Weibull for TV, but you should not use it for search because search is different. Right. That Those are the kinds of questions I want to. I think that's where academia, you know, that's a sweet spot for an academic to contribute like kind of foundational knowledge that the rest of the industry can build on. Exactly. And that's that's exactly the kind of research that you can do in the test and experimentation that you can do that, you know, a, a business isn't going to do that. Right? They're not going to necessarily want to, with such, um, you know, sort of pinpoint accuracy, understand exactly what is the decay rate of this channel um, you know, they, they need to make bigger decisions. How, you know, where am I going to put my budget in this channel or that? And, you know, let's, so, yeah. so I'll just, I'll just put it out there. If you, if you know, or any of your listeners have clean RCTs that they want to donate to the scientific endeavor, they should email me. Yes. I would be really excited. Like if we had some clean RCTs, then we, the more I have, the more I can start to say, like, these are the general things you should be doing in your models. And these are things you probably shouldn't be doing. That would be fantastic. Well, definitely uh, any listeners that uh, have some nice, clean uh, test results or tests that you've run and, and are willing to donate that, let's please get in touch. Um, Just like give your body to science, <laughs> give your data to science. Yes, I love it. Give your data to science. Um, so as we kind of uh, wrap up, and this is maybe a good segue, you know, for people who want to get in touch with you, if they have data that they want to donate, um, if they uh, have questions and they want to reach out to you, are, are you active on on LinkedIn or Twitter, or where, how should they? I am active in both of those places. We'll see how long Twitter lasts. That's where I am most days. But uh, threads, but Mastodon. <laughs> I'm yeah, I got those too, nice. but I'm not sure where I'll be hanging out. So LinkedIn is probably the safest bet for now. I think Microsoft is in it for the long haul. Definitely. Um, so, but you can also just email me uh elliefight.com e-l-e-a-f-e-i-t and um yeah i'm i'm happy to talk to marketers i uh i have a rule that i'll i'll talk to anyone for half an hour so awesome very generous happy to and are there are there any questions that i didn't ask that uh or any any last parting thoughts that um that you want to want to get out there just that causal inference is hard so uh uh, if you want to know if your action is affecting an outcome, the only way really to do it is to randomize everything else. You have to be super careful. Absolutely. We need t-shirts that say randomization will set you free. <laughs> we do. We totally need that. Okay. I'm going to act on that, Jim. Okay. Well, whoever, whichever one of us acts on it first, um, if I get them printed first, I'll send you on <laughs> and we'll, we'll get Please this up. Yeah. Right back at you. 
Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Ellie, for spending so much time with us. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Actually, I don't know why I said that. I, I still don't have my catchphrase for the ending of the show. So I'm saying. <laughs> I am also looking for a catchphrase for the ending of my class. So when you come up with one. All right. I, you know, I could steal from Analytics Power Hour and I could say, and remember, just keep analyzing. But Michael Helbling might might take uh, issue with that one. So I have to come up with my own. Um, but we'll, we'll get to it one of these days. But in the meantime, keep randomizing. Well, my friend, you've made it to the end of the show, which means you either found it so riveting you couldn't turn it off, or you're out for a jog and can't easily hit the skip button on your phone. Either way, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would find it helpful. And please, as a personal favor to me, go to iTunes or wherever you listen to this and leave a rating and review. That helps others find us, but more importantly, shows that you're a thought leader who cares about your craft and wants others to join this tribe. 